Good morning. Welcome to chapel. I'm excited to be here and have looked forward to this opportunity for quite some time. And uh, you know, I love and respect you as well as the leadership here, Pastor Chapel, each student and staff. I'm just privileged to do what God's let me do and I'm excited about this week. In fact, when Dr. Gatch initially asked me to do chapel this semester, it was tomorrow and then some things changed, got moved back to today. But you guys ready for leap day? That's tomorrow. In fact, there's some things I didn't know about Leap Day until this week. I was looking it up. In the 5th century, Bridget Kildare, an Irish clergyman, complained to St. Patrick that the men were taking far too long to propose to the women. Apparently back in Ireland in the 5th century, this was a problem. And St. Patrick determined that Leap Day would be known as Bachelor's Day. And it was the day, one time every four years, when the women could propose to the men, and it was all okay. So if you've been waiting for the opportunity, you've heard of uh, Sadie Hawkins. (laughs) This is next level, right? This is Bachelor's Day. This is where the girls propose Man, apparently it's a tradition that's kind of throughout Europe and is in Denmark and the rest of England now. It's kind of spread. I didn't know this was a thing. Has anybody else heard of Bachelor's Day? Have you guys heard of Bachelor's Day? Come on, ladies. Have you, no, no, no one else. Okay. So this is the thing. So tomorrow's the day. I thought I'd give you 24 hours warning in case you needed 24 hours to pick somebody else out. <laughs> I was thinking of the benefit of having an anniversary on the leap day. You only have to men remember your anniversary once every four years. You get three years off in between. So make it big when it comes around, if that helps you, if you're bad at remembering dates. Leap day may be your day, and uh, maybe something great will happen. I want to say that as the father of two teenagers that when my kids think about being an adult, when they think about growing up, and when they think about serving Jesus, uh, they don't look at adults, they don't think of adults and think of Taylor Swift or influencers on YouTube or something they saw on TikTok or on social media. When my teenagers think of grown-ups, they think of you. I just want to say thank you for modeling Serving Jesus, loving Jesus, uh, giving your life to the Lord. I'm grateful that they have people like you to look up to. And when I say they think of you, I don't just mean as a class. Sometimes individually. Sometimes they know, they know more about who's dating who than I know. And they keep track of stuff like that. Especially my oldest is a girl. It amazes me sometimes what she knows about your life. I don't even know anything about your life. But they're keeping track of some things. And uh, it's just a privilege to raise kids in an environment where there's a lot of people like you that model serving the Lord. And I'm grateful for it. If you have your Bible with you, I hope you do. Let's go to Matthew chapter number 23 today. And in Matthew chapter number 23, we see a passage that is really toward the end of the ministry of Christ. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus really reaches the last chapter before the crucifixion. So in in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We call this the triumphant entry, and that's, of course, a big event, and Hosanna, and throwing down their cloaks, and this is a big deal, fulfilling all this prophecy in the Old Testament. That was Matthew 21, which leads right into some conflict 
And Jesus had conflict there from the end of 21 all the way through chapter number 22. If you were to read these chapters, he has conflict with the scribes and with the Herodians and with the Sadducees and with the elders and with the Pharisees. And it's just conflict after conflict for a chapter and a half. And when we open our Bible to chapter number 23, we're still in that moment. It's still Jesus under attack. It's still Jesus in conflict. It's still Christ dealing with these other uh, devious questions or confronting bad uh, treatment of him. Of course, you know where this goes. Chapter number 24, 25. Once you get into 25, 26, Olivet Discourse, and then 27, beyond, of course, the rejection of the king, the rejection of Messiah, the crucifixion, and death, burial, and resurrection. That's kind of where we're at. But we're right in the middle of that. We're right at the end. Jesus is in Jerusalem. His Galilean work is done. His, the first uh, big part of his ministry is complete. And now we're ticking down the stopwatch to crucifixion day. And here he is under attack. It's not that day yet, but we're getting close to that week. And he has all these people that are, uh, that are uh, needing correction or are attacking him. And in chapter number 23, he goes through a whole list of woes. In fact, there are eight woes in this passage, and a lot of them are directed towards some of those people that we talked about earlier. In fact, let's catch up real quick to where we are. Look in verse number 13 of chapter 23. You see there's a woe for shutting up the kingdom of heaven. The very next verse, you see another, uh, verse number 24. He says, woe for taking advantage of widows and living for the praise of men. Verse 15, woe for making new converts twice as bad as yourself. Verse number 16, woe for giving yourself permission to lie. This is crazy. It's like they were saying, if you swear by the temple, you're free. But if you swear by the gold that is in the temple, then you're a debtor. Remember that passage? That's right here. And Jesus says, you guys, you guys are, you're, you're being ridiculous and you're being unethical and you're, you're abusing scripture and there's all of these woes. Jesus said a lot of shocking things in his life, in his ministry. Things like forgive seven times seven, 70 times seven. That was shocking. Jesus said things like, I and my father are one. That was shocking to the Jews. Jesus said shocking things like, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Jesus said things like, ye have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is saying one shocking thing after another. You know he said them, so you're familiar with it. But for a Jewish believer here in the first century, this Jesus was saying these, these incredibly shocking things. And right here, is one of the most shocking. When you say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Who are these people? Well, the scribes, those which had stewardship of the law, who would copy down the lawyers and the scribes, would, would study, but would preserve and copy these texts. You can go to Israel today, and they'll have some scribes there that will make a ceremonial handwritten copy of the Torah. I think it takes up to a year to complete a full scroll. And, of course, these are very valuable, and this is a very sacred position, but they're entrusted with Scripture, the scribes. And the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees are kind of the reformers. They've been around since uh, probably uh, Ezekiel's or uh, Ezra's time. And they're uh, after the, during the, 
really leaning into the second temple period. They're trying to bring everybody back to worship. You've got synagogues popping up, and they don't read a lot about Pharisees, anything about Pharisees in the Old Testament, right? But in the silent years, by the time you get to the New Testament, really they're calling people to faithfulness to the law, and they're calling people, and there's some good things that the Pharisees did, to be honest. But they got to a point, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, where there was a lot of duplicitousness, a lot of self-serving, a, a lot of abuse of the law, and Jesus is here confronting them. In fact, specifically, we want to begin and take our text in verse number 23 of chapter 23, and this is the fifth woe out of eight in this passage, and it's the one we'll spend our time in primarily today. Verse number 23 of Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have, committed, uh, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the others undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. The first thing I want to consider this morning is the woe here in verse number 23. First, you see the obedience of the Pharisees and of the scribes. In fact, they're commended for that which they did do. What did they do? Look at the passage. What did they do? They tithed, right? Of course, this is under the Old Testament law. Jesus hadn't died and uh, consummated that Old Testament law. We know, of course, from Romans chapter 10 and verse number 4 that Christ is the end of the law to all those who believe. But this is prior to that. Jesus is still fulfilling the law here in his life, and he'll give his, himself as that sacrificial lamb at the Passover here in a, uh, a few days or weeks. But at this point, Jesus is talking to people that are under the law, and he says unto them, you're tithing from your mint and your uh, cumin and your anise. It would be like a, a dill. If you ever had a dill, pep, a dill pickle, that somebody had that piece of a plant in there, and it gives it the dill flavor. And Jesus says, that's great that you're doing this. Now, the fact is, tithing in the Old Testament is a lot more complicated than we like to think. I think of tithing, and I think of giving the Lord 10% of your income. But that's not actually how it worked in the Old Testament. Tithing in the Old Testament, number one, wasn't 10%. Tithing in the Old Testament was somewhere between 20 and 30%. You have the Leverite tithe. This is given to the Levites instead of a land inheritance. You had the, the sacrificial tithe, the tithe for the ceremonial uh, the, the feasts and the festivals. By the way, this is the tithe. Have you ever read those weird passages in the Old Testament where they like tithe? They have an a, a, a animal they're going to tithe and then they travel to Jerusalem and then they, they, they consume their tithe? Have you ever read that? They like, they like eat their tithe and they, they, they feast on their tithe? Like, what is that? Well, that's a, the, the festival tithe and that was an annual tithe as well. Every three years, there was a third tithe, and this would have been the tithe to the poor, and this was something and that, that they would do every three years, not every one year. So if you're keeping track, that's probably about 23.3% tithe in the Old Testament. So, so, but, but it's kind of complicated. In fact, not everybody tithed in the Old Testament. The tithe wasn't on income, per se. Tithe was on the increase of the land. So it was really the agrarian 
vocations that tithe as best as we can tell. In fact, we've got a lot of evidence from this, from Scripture, the Old Testament, as well as uh, Josephus or the, the rabbinical writings. A carpenter didn't tithe per se. A, a, a bricklayer wouldn't have been under a tithe based on the Levitical or Deuteronomy uh, statutes. And it wasn't everybody. It was herders and it was people who grew, had land basically and who grew crops. They were all to tithe. Of course, the Levites tithed to the priest. The priest didn't tithe. But you've got all of these rules for a tithe. It's very, very complicated. It's kind of like uh, today, if you have ever had the privilege of preparing your own taxes. Anybody, have you done that? I started doing that about your age. And I realized it's pretty complicated. I just got the, the, the long form, and I just started filling that out. I got it from the post office when I was 18. I started filling that out. And number one, I realized government took a lot of money, even at 18. And I also realized, this is complicated. Like, do you count this money? Do you not count this money? How do you count a deduction? Especially when you're 18, am I a dependent of my parents, or am I independent of my parents? All these are, it gets complicated, right? Maybe you have somebody prepare your taxes, and it's easier. But the paint tithes got complicated, and it got even more complicated under the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said, hey, we don't want to break God's law in any way. So they started to build out some additional rules. One of them's even mentioned here, tithing off of a mint. A mint is a leaf, and the, the tithe in the Old Testament had to do with the produce and the, the seed for sure, and the, the sheep and the animals. And a mint is a little bit debatable, but it became a law under the Pharisees that mint was included, all of your garden variety uh, leaves were. So they had all these rules about tithing. Got even more complicated with the temple tax in the New Testament time, and, and we won't go through all that. But Jesus walks up here, and the first thing we see is the obedience of the Pharisees. And they're commended for this. They are commended for their obedience. But that's not the main point of this verse, is it? Jesus' primary point in chapter 23 isn't attaboys to the scribes and Pharisees, right? Jesus' primary point here is he's correcting things that they're doing wrong. So apparently there's something wrong with how they're doing this whole tithing thing. Because they're tithing. Oh, they're mint and cumin and anise, but they're not doing something that they really ought to be doing. So the second thing we see here is the omission. Jesus says in this passage, you have omitted the weightier matters of the law, of justice or judgment, uh, mercy and faith. That word omitted, you have omitted, it's the same word used when Jesus calls his disciples and they left their nets. They omitted their nets. So this would be what Jesus is saying. You have left. You have just left them laying there. You haven't attended to them. You've, you, you've left them entirely. You've omitted these weightier matters of the law. This is something that is very serious, according to Christ, because it's something that is so common here in the days that he lived. Let me give you one example. If, you're, if I were to ask you, in what ways did the Pharisees omit these important parts of the law I don't know, maybe you'd think of some, but Jesus talked about one a few chapters before. Let's go back. If you have your Bible still out, let's go to Matthew chapter 15. And let's just do a real quick flyover. This is just an illustration of one of the many examples that we could give of how the scribes and the Pharisees omitted these important areas of the law. This is a shocking passage if you've ever looked at it because Jesus is condemning them for traditions that end up undercutting the actual Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses in the Old Testament. 
Let me, let me just, I won't read every verse. Let me tell you what happens here. They walk, they walk in, and Jesus' disciples are eating something. And the people watching them said, oh, they didn't wash their hands. Remember that? Now, for the Jews, washing their hands was a big deal. Now, again, technically, it's not commanded in the Old Testament to wash their hands before they eat. And it has nothing to do with hygiene. It's a ceremonial thing. And, and, and it was really a command for the priest to do it before their sacrifice, but it became more and more common. And at this point, it was a tradition of the elders that everybody had to wash their hands. In fact, it was such a big deal, especially before eating bread specifically, it was such a big deal that the rabbinical tradition says you're obligated to walk up to four miles if you know of a water source in order to wash your hands before eating bread. Four miles. When's the last time you've walked four miles? It's a long ways, right? Just to wash your hands, just to eat. Okay, so they see that Jesus' disciples didn't do this. And they start, start picking at them. They start murmuring about them. And Jesus turns it around and says, hey, you're asking me why don't they follow the tradition of the elders. Let me ask you a question. Why do you allow those traditions to invalidate the law? That's what he says right here in verse number 15. In verse number 4. Uh, verse number uh, two, actually, why do they disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hand when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, why do ye also transgress the command of God by your tradition? Do you see a difference? They were accusing the disciples of violating what? The tradition of the elders. Jesus turns around and says, yeah, but why, don't you, why do you violate the command of God? You see, these are two different levels here. In what way were they violating the command of God by their traditions? Verse number four, God commanded, saying, honor thy father and thy mother. You knew about this verse. This is in the Ten Commandments. Were they using tradition to not honor their father and mother? Oh, absolutely. Verse number five, but ye say, whoever shall say to his father and mother, it is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not your father or mother, he shall be free. Okay, here's what was happening. People realized God expected them to care for their elderly parents. Today we use phrases like an elderly person on a fixed income. Well, in the New Testament era, that would be an elderly person on a no income, right? There's no 401k, there's no social security, there's no safety net here. You have a family or you don't have anything. And you're obligated as a young person to care for your elderly parents if they're in need. By the way, I think that still applies today, uh, the principle of it. But here's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees found a trick. They made this up. This is this little tradition they made up. And they said, hey, if we give everything that we have to God, then we're not obligated. I think there's some rain coming later this week. But how many remember, what, like two weeks ago when there was all that rain? And some people have umbrellas, I realized. And some people don't have umbrellas. I don't have an umbrella. Uh, my daughter has an umbrella. My, my, some people in my family have an umbrella. Some people in the office where I work have an umbrella, but not everybody has an umbrella. I walked into my office soaking wet, you know, kind of shaking the rain off and uh, getting it off me, and I walked in, and there's a whole row of umbrellas there by the wall. Now, by the time I needed to leave next, the rain was a little bit less. But imagine if I walked up and I said, hey, whose umbrella is this? Figured out who it was. Maybe it's Dr. Burt's. Maybe I said, eh, Dr. Burt's, is this your umbrella? Yeah. Uh, I need to, I'm, I'm going to go get a coffee and I'm going to come back. Can I use your umbrella? He'd probably say, 
I didn't know. I was just asking. He would say, yeah. But imagine if he said, here, here's what he said instead. No, you can't use my umbrella because it's God's umbrella. <laughs> what? I can't use your umbrella because it's God's umbrella, but you can, use, you can use God's umbrella, but I can't use God's umbrella. That's exactly what the tradition became. If you said it is a gift, you take your umbrella, you lay it against the wall, and you say it is a gift. <laughs> At that point, you're not obligated to share it anymore. You're not obligated to support your parents with it anymore. So people were doing that about their house and their livelihood and their possessions. They would just say, it is a gift. All right, mom and dad, I'm sorry. I can't give you anything because it all belongs to God. So I got to use it all myself. You see what's happening? They had this tradition that they were practicing and they would preach and they would, they, they would and by the way, they would feel, can you imagine how righteous you would feel if somebody says, how much do you give to God? Oh, I give 10%. Ooh, how much do you give to God? I give 22.3%. Oh, wow. How much do you give to God? Everything. Everything. But you know what was happening? After they gave everything to God, they were sharing nothing to the people who were in need, even their own mom and dad. And Jesus says, hey, you're concerned about them washing their hands before eating bread. I'm concerned about you keeping no less than the Ten Commandments. But you're using your tradition to undermine my law. You see, that's one of the examples of what Christ is referring to here when he says, number one, you've got some obedience, but number two, you've got some omission, right? You're not doing these really important things, but somehow you've continued to do all of the, the, the things that are a little bit more uh, peripheral, things that are a little bit more interpretive, some things that seem to be a little bit less central. Jesus here confronts them on their traditions because the reality is instead of keeping God's commandment, they were violating it. Reminds me of Micah chapter 6 and verse number 8. He has showed the old man what is good and what doth God require. You know this, but to love mercy, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. You see, the Pharisees had an obsession an obsession with doing the little things and they were ignoring the big things. Look back here in verse number, in chapter 23, look at verse number 24. He says, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and, and swallow a camel. Jesus probably was speaking in Aramaic here. And in Aramaic, the word for a gnat is gamla, and the word for a camel is galma. The M and the L switch. So Jesus, we, we can't read this in English or even in Greek. It's not the same. But Jesus probably said this is kind of a, a really witty sleight of tongue here. But guess what? A camel is unclean in the Old Testament and a gnat is unclean in the Old Testament. Picture a gnat. You know what a gnat is? We had a fruit fly around our bananas on the counter this last week and I kept trying to grab it. You ever tried to grab a fruit fly? You know, a little, little dot. Can hardly see them until they're flying. If they're on the, a white surface, they look like a speck of pepper. You ever seen a gnat like that? Just these tiny, tiny little bugs. Well, I'll be honest, if I had a gnat in my cup of water, I would want to strain it out. Actually, I'd probably want to pour it out, right, and get a new cup of water. But if I had a little something in there, you can picture if somebody has this, like, uh, if you have a thin piece of cloth and you're pouring some water through to get rid of the floaties so that you've got purer water, there are times that they would do that. 
And Jesus said, you're straining at the gnat. You're looking at the little specks. You're, you're looking at the smallest animal that you knew was a gnat. And you're straining at the gnats, but you're swallowing a camel. See, they were obsessed with the small points, but they were inadvertently or perhaps even intentionally violating the most significant points. So we see in this passage, first, the woe in verse number 23. Well, I only have two points, but I want to turn our attention now to the, the weightier matters that's mentioned here in verse number 23. What would you say if I told you that not every biblical teaching is of equal importance? What would you say if I said that not everything in the Bible is at the same level of significance. Now that definitely seems problematic, doesn't it? As soon as I say, not everything is equally important, some of you immediately think, he's saying some things are not important. That's actually not at all what I'm saying. Tell you a quick story. Last summer, uh, there was a lot of significant things going on at the England home. I was finishing up a, a PhD and been working on that for a long time, way too long. And uh, we had some big things happening. And there had been this vision that we'd had for years and years and years that we're going to take this huge trip. And we'd actually saved for about six years for this huge trip. And then we decided to do it. Last summer, we took this massive trip. And uh, we were gone for over three weeks and we traveled to different countries. And it was just, it was just an amazing trip. But if you travel heavy, you have to pay more for luggage, and it's kind of hard to lug all these suitcases around because we were in all kinds of different places. So we bought everybody a backpack. In fact, all my kids have a backpack. My wife has a backpack. I bought a backpack. I really like my backpack. It's a 40-liter travel backpack, and it's got a little spot where you can put a charger in here. You can unzip the bottom and put your shoes in. You can, uh, you can fit a lot of things in this backpack, and I did. This backpack I took all over the place this last summer. And everything that I had for more than three weeks fit in this backpack. My shoes were in here. My clothes were in here. I don't know why, but I took my laptop. I've got a thin laptop. I carried a laptop around for three weeks and used it some. Everything that I carried, I had in this backpack. And I needed to have it in a small container. Because we were in boats and planes and cars and trains. We were in all kinds of different places. And we were moving a lot. We, were, we, we had this whole thing mapped out. And, and I just wanted to be mobile. So all my kids had a backpack and I had a backpack. And I learned a lot about packing light. I learned about uh, having in one backpack everything you need for week after week after week. Not quite a month, but almost a month. How many of you would agree with me and understand if I tell you that this backpack was very important to me this summer? It was all I had. Like literally the clothes on my back and the backpack on my back was all that I had with me for over three weeks this last summer. But you know what? As important as this backpack was, the rule was everybody gets to bring one bag. But Dad actually brought two bags. I had a backpack, and then I had a second bag made by Osprey. It's a security pouch for your most valuable items. What do you think I put in here? <clears throat> passports. I had six passports that I was keeping track of. 
And there's some countries where you actually have to keep your passport with you at all times, unlike in the United States or other countries aren't like that. And, and uh, we had a little bit of cash as well, some high dollar bills, but mainly those passports. And we put those in this bag, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to model it for you, but you kind of see how it goes. This actually goes over your shoulder and under your arm, and then you put your shirt over it. You can't even tell that you've got it, and it just kind of sits right there against your side. And if you look at a couple of my pictures, you can almost see a black strip here from last summer, but most times you couldn't even see it. I had these passports with me at all times. Now, guess what? This bag was very important. This bag was more important. Now, this bag was more weighty in that sense of the term, because that's how Christ is using the term here. This had more significance to me. Now, how many of you think that now that I've convinced you this bag was the most important bag that I had, does that mean this bag was less important? It wasn't. This bag still had all of my clothes and my computers, my chargers for my phone. It had everything that I needed to live for the next uh, couple of weeks, this bag only had what I needed to get back into the country. So if I had to have only one thing, I was going to choose this bag, but this bag was really important as well. What Christ says here in this passage is that there are weightier matters of the law. Sometimes we struggle with this idea of hierarchy in our worldview. It's not intuitive for us. It's not easy for us to always see that there's, there's a rank of significance in certain aspects of this. Now, I want to say this very plainly. Don't hear me say something I didn't say. All biblical truth is equally true. But not all biblical truth may be equally important in certain senses. Jesus said, you have done the tithing on the mint and the anise and the cumin, but the, the things that you omitted, the justice or the judgment and the faith and the mercy, what does Jesus call those? Those are the weightier matters. Hey, can you understand this? If everything is a priority, nothing's a priority. The, the root word there for prior, priority is prior. What does prior mean? Before? right? Have you ever been to an airport and they have different zones loading? I flew last month and got to the airport. I was flying American Airlines and they had nine zones. So first they joined, first they uh, boarded all the elite passengers and then all the platinum and then the diamond and then the gold and then the, <laughs> you know, all the, all the cool, all the wealthy, all the, I don't know how you get all these statuses. But zones one through four were priority. So I was standing there, and I saw people go on the plane, and, you know, you see a lot of nice clothes and nice tennies, and, I mean, just, you know, these people apparently have money, and, and they're boarding first. And when you walk in, if you've, if you've ever flown first class, I did one time in my life, and uh, it was the weirdest thing. I walked in, and... Uh, I, I was getting to sit in one of these big seats and I took my coat off because I was coming back from a, a trip where I had to have a coat and they stopped the flow of people boarding and they took my coat and they hung it in a closet. It was this amazing thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was like one of those 50-minute flights from like, you know, uh, Phoenix to uh, Vegas or something like that. I forget where I was. It was a really short flight. But I was like, wow, this is first class. That never, typically I don't ever do that. So I'm standing there, they boarded zones one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then they boarded me. 
What if they said, you know what, here at American Airlines, we reject the concept of social hierarchy, of the privilege of the 1%. We believe everybody is priority. Therefore, you're all priority. If you have a ticket, you may board now. <laughs> How would that work? That wouldn't work so well, right? Because guess what? Priority means that something has to go first. If you say everybody is a priority on the flight, guess what? Nobody is priority boarding. What Jesus is telling us here in this passage is that there are some matters of the law that are weightier than others. Now, watch this. Jesus isn't directly talking about doctrine here, but we see this teaching about the law of Scripture, about the teachings within Scripture, to be applicable across the board. Think about this. When you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, let me turn there, let, let me just uh, give you a verse. Verse 14 is the verse we want. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, verse 14, the Bible says, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Paul said in this verse, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is not true. If Nobody rises from the dead, then Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, guess what? Our preaching is vain. You're still in your sin, and we're of all men, what? Most miserable. Remember that? Guess what? If the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity isn't true. Good news is, resurrection did happen, and Christianity is true. But what Paul is saying here is that this is an absolutely essential part of the gospel. There are other things that are clearly taught in Scripture that may not be necessarily a part of the Gospel. I think of Paul's instruction to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy where he says that younger widows should remarry, bear children, and guide the house. This is a clear teaching in Scripture. This is, this is the biblical pattern that Paul gave Timothy there in Ephesus for what ought to generally happen when a young woman is widowed. And, and by the way, we, we see that sometimes today. This last week, we, uh, there's somebody in our church that uh, a couple years ago lost uh, her husband and uh, was married this last weekend. And uh, we rejoice in that. And we're excited for their uh, next, next couple of uh, decades together. Some of you might have been at the wedding. Paul says this pretty clearly. It's not hard to understand. This is something Paul says should happen with uh, young widows in the church. But guess what? That's not necessarily a, a, a gospel-centric issue, right? We understand that. Here's how I think about this. There are some things, if you disagree with me, then I'm going to think you're wrong. There are some things, if you disagree with me, I'm going to say that you're in uh, contradiction to the Scripture, and then there's some things, if you disagree with me, you need to get saved. And there's a, there's a level, right? So if you disagree with me on whether uh, Coke or Pepsi is better, I'm more a Coke guy. If there's two on a counter, I'm going to grab the Coke every time. In fact, I don't even drink uh, soda that much, but I prefer Coke over Pepsi. If you're different, that's fine. I, I disagree, but it's okay, right? If, if we're talking about something like, like uh, uh, what... So, so something even in Scripture, let's say in Acts chapter number 6, when there's a selection of leaders in the church, are those deacons or are those not deacons? I know good people that disagree on this exact point. 
I've even heard our pastor, Dr. Chapel, reference uh, one of his good friends that has a different view on that passage than he himself does. And it's, it doesn't mean they're not friends. In fact, it doesn't mean they don't preach together. It just means that they disagree on that point. But then there's other areas like the resurrection, according to Paul, and I would certainly agree with that. If you disagree with me on the resurrection, I, by the way, affirm the resurrection, and the virgin birth, and the gospel, and right, Christ's atonement, and if you disagree with me on that point, I can still love you, but not as a brother or sister. Why? Because you're not even saved, right? I can love you as a person, like Jesus loves everybody, but you're not, you're not on your way to heaven. So you see in Scripture that there's clearly some things, like, like the resurrection, that are clearly taught as a, a foundational aspect of the gospel. There are other things that are clearly taught. I just gave an example of one that uh, maybe uh, that aren't gospel issues per se. There are other things that are less clearly taught, like Acts chapter number 6. And then there's things that we're directly told to give deference to other people's conscience on. Romans chapter 14 talks about this, and it talks specifically about holidays. Have you ever talked to somebody that they celebrate holidays differently than you do? Well, that's even a bigger deal in the New Testament context, right? Because you've got Jewish people, and you've got Jewish Christians, you've got Gentiles and Gentile Christians, and especially the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, they sometimes disagreed on how to, how to recognize these holy days from the Jewish calendar. Because the Gentile Christians, these holy days meant really nothing to them. And for the Jews, these holy days meant were very, very significant to them. This is how they followed God. And they didn't view themselves as following a different God. By the way, they weren't. They're just receiving the Messiah. And these holy days were important to them. And what the Bible says in Romans chapter number 14, in verse number 5, One man exalteth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Here's what it is. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. By the way, that is the passage where we're told whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If somebody tells you that if you can figure something out, like if you can figure your school bill out and you know how you're going to pay for it, then that's not of faith. God's not pleased. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know that's not what Romans chapter 14 says. Romans chapter 14 says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. What it's saying is if you can't do this, eating meat or drinking a certain drink, or, or following a certain holiday, if you can't do what you decide to do in these areas of preference in faith, then for you it's sin. See, if you think it's sin and you still do it, you've sinned. Regardless of whether or not God said it was sin. Because you're violating your conscience and you're going against what you believe is right. So there's some things where we give deference to other people. By the way, that's why I'm a Baptist. Because I believe what Scripture teaches and that is the individual soul liberty. Right? That's what that I stands for. That means somebody else may think that playing face cards is wrong, and I may think that playing face cards is okay, and guess what I should do when I'm around the person that thinks it's wrong? I should belittle them, right? I should make fun of them. I should poke them. No, 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 it's not at all. What Paul says is you should act in charity toward them. You should be willing to limit your liberty, even if their lack of liberty is misunderstanding. Paul said, I'm willing to not eat meat as long as the world stands. To not offend a brother in Christ. So we see that there's this hierarchy in our belief system. And young person, here's why I'm so passionate about this. Because while we're saying that this is clearly taught in Scripture, and while we've given multiple examples of it, we don't sometimes talk about it. We don't sometimes think about it a whole lot. And here's why it's important. Because one day, you're going to change your mind 
about something. Have you ever changed your mind about anything? People who have never changed their mind about anything make me nervous. <laughs> they really do. I've changed my mind about some things in the last couple of years. I've learned some things from Scripture. I've grown and I've developed in some areas. Not fundamental areas. Like, you know, deity of Christ, virgin birth, you know, uh, resurrection. These are fundamental areas. By the way, if you're a fundamentalist, you need to know what the fundamentals are. Right? If you're going to be a fundamentalist, you need to know what is fundamental. And what we see here in Scripture is Jesus is saying that there are some weightier matters of the law. And if you come to the point where you might change your mind on something, at some point in the future, I've seen this over and over and over again, where young people are given by, by well-meaning parents and teachers. They're given what I call a unibody worldview. And, and I was given this. My dad was an atheist raised in an unsafe family who came to Christ as a young adult, went to Bible college, earned a degree in pastoral theology, and then for the next, until today, has spent decades serving the Lord in local church work. And I love that story. And guess what? I was a PK, right? I was a preacher's kid. Uh, I, I, I went to church all the time, every day. I've just, I've, some of you understand what it means, to, especially in a small church. I was church pianist at age uh, 13. I was teaching Sunday school classes at age 11. I was saved at, as a young, young child. I mean, I was all in. And guess what? My parents very intentionally and very biblically and very lovingly and with a very biblical foundation taught me what it means to be a Christian. And you know what? They also taught me what it means to be a Republican. And what it means to be a man, and what it means to vote correctly, and what it means to have a good testimony, and what it means to, to uh, repair a car properly. I, I learned all of these things from my parents, and guess what? There comes a day when sometimes you might come to a little bit different conclusion. You might think, okay, somebody thinks that playing cards is wrong, but I don't think that anymore, and I used to. Or somebody thinks that uh, going to the movie is, is okay, but I used to, but now I don't think it's okay anymore. And you might change your mind on something, and you might come to the point where you wonder, okay, well, since I changed my mind on, on you know, playing cards or on that holiday, I wonder if it's still true that Jesus is God. <laughs> What in the world? How do we get to the point where, where our whole worldview just collapses and implodes like that? Let me ask you a question. Can you think of somebody that this has happened to? Do you know someone who they got to 18 and they got to 19 and they changed their mind on something? It could be dress. It could be standards. It could be some, some, some tertiary issue. And then all of a sudden their faith implodes. Here's what I'm here to tell you this morning. Your faith isn't fragile. Your worldview isn't vulnerable. Your, what, what we have here in Scripture as a Christian, as the Christian faith, this isn't something that is susceptible to imploding. What we've got to understand is there is a frame and there is a structure. I had a little town where I grew up in, Wells, Minnesota, and they had no hotel in the whole town. And then one day, one of the businessmen put a hotel in. It came in on semi-trucks in five sections. You ever seen a prefabricated, like a double-wide? This is just like a triple-wide hotel. <laughs> it's the smallest hotel you've ever seen. But it just came in on these, these semi-trucks, and they just took a train, and they, like Legos, they just one, two, three, four, five. Like one day, there's like a field, and then there's a hotel. Probably had six rooms in it or something. It wasn't that big of a hotel. But it was a prefabricated building. And guess what? 
maybe you've received a prefabricated worldview. By the way, if you have, you're blessed. If somebody has cared enough for you to help you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ and all of that, you're blessed. But guess what? Here's what I'm here to tell you. That behind the drywall is a stud. That under the shingle is a board. That beneath the paint is a wall. That underneath the linoleum is solid wood. And here's what you need to recognize. When Christ references the weightier matters of the law, he's helping us to see that there is perhaps different levels of significance in some aspects of biblical teaching. But here's what I believe. The main things are the plain things. If you ever get worked up about, you know, someone else disagrees with me, do you have a friend that disagrees with you on something? That's... That's, that happens to all of us. If two people agree on absolutely everything, only one of them is doing the thinking. I have a wonderful, brilliant, godly, intelligent wife who got way better grades than I did. She's, she's just absolutely fantastic. Is she here today? Oh, man. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and there are things that we might have different uh, opinions on here and there. I'm not threatened by that. I don't think she has to think exactly like I do, like a cookie cutter in every area. Guess what? Her thoughts and her understandings are formed as she studies scripture, as we talk, as we attend church, as we, and, 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 by the way, we're, we're, we're 99 point, a bunch of nines percent the same. But, but here's what I'm saying, that we have to understand that what God has given us in our faith is something that can endure the test. So as we conclude, I just want to remind you of some of the main truths in this passage. I want to ask you three questions. Number one, are you ignoring known truth in your life? Jesus did begin by calling out hypocrisy in this passage. Jesus said, hey, you know what to do. You're familiar with the law, but you're not doing it. You're focused on, you know, tithing your mint, and you're ignoring justice and faith and mercy. You're over here saying it's all a gift, and your parents, who you have a moral and social and biblical obligation to, are desolate. You're using the tradition of the elders to omit the law of God. So I'm here to ask you, do you have known areas of truth that you're not obeying? Jesus decries the hypocrisy. Are you doing one thing but saying another? I also want to ask you, do you understand the weightier matters of the law? It's important for us to know that we can't compromise. It's important for us to know there are things you can't give up. Even though this was really important to me this last summer, this never left my sight because it had the passports in it. And young person, you have to be willing and you have to be able <clears throat> to stand on truth no matter what opposition comes your way. And to have a resilient faith, not a fragile faith. To have a faith that grows over time, not deconstructs over time. You have to know that at the foundation, it's solid. And that solidity and that basis, by the way, you're building that in college, but you're building that on a personal level as well. So may we, like Christ, recognize and follow these weightier matters.